Father, we thank you so very much for your great love and grace. We thank you, Father, that you indeed are more than enough. Father, you promise to meet our needs. You promise to not abandon us. You've promised us that you're coming back. And no matter what kind of chaos we see in our world, we know we can trust your promises. And we know that you will never let us down. I pray, Lord, as we seek you in your word, that you would speak to us, that you would give us grace, and that you would help us, Lord, to hear your voice through the scriptures tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began 2 Samuel with a look at David receiving the news from an Amalekite that Saul and Jonathan were dead. As a result, David had that man killed for killing Saul. And then we studied the, the song of lament that David composed for Jonathan and Saul. Today, we're going to see something that David has waited a very long time for. Well, a very long time, I would consider it a very long time. In the grand scheme of history, it really wasn't that long. But from David's perspective and all that he went through in the last book, it was a long time. So 2 Samuel chapter 2. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, came there, sorry, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord to Saul and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So David asked the Lord, hey, what should I do? Right? He, he, we, he had not been inquiring of the Lord for a while until Ziklag got attacked and his family had been taken. Then he inquires of the Lord. Well, he learned, all right, well, I better inquire of the Lord, right? Saul's dead. The king of Israel's dead. Israel has fled battle from the Philistines. The, the Israel's military uh, basically fell apart. And David's like, well, what do I do now? Lord, what do I do? And the Lord says, go up to Hebron. So he and his men leave Ziklag and they settle in Hebron. Once he's there, the people of Judah anoint him king over them. Now, this is why I say it was a long time. Uh, some scholars like to argue about this number, and that's fine. I would never argue about it. But it was a minimum of 15 years. Most people, or scholars anyway, uh, assume David was somewhere around 14 or 15 when Samuel anointed him king. Uh, it was been, been a, a couple of years later, uh, well, maybe a year or two, when he faced Goliath, so 16-ish, maybe 17. And now another 13, 14 years have gone by. So from 15-year-old kid, called in from tending the sheep, some crazy old guy pours oil on your head and says, you're the next king of Israel. Then he spends the next couple years in Saul's good graces, and then he spends the next 13, 14 years running from Saul, fearing for his life, and now he's king. It's going to be seven and a half more years before he's king over all Israel, but that's for another time. David promises to reward the people of Jabesh Gilead for their kindness to Saul when he hears what they did for Saul. And I want you to notice this verse 7. You know, men of Jabesh Gilead, you did this great thing. I will repay your kindness. By the way, Saul's dead and now I'm king. Just 
in case you needed someone to follow, right? I kind of, I kind of like how he snuck that in there. Real subtle, David, real subtle. Verse eight. Now, you guys ready? Abner, the son of Ner. We're not going to have him much longer, just so you know. So son of Ner, son of Ner, he's not going to be along too much longer. Uh, but he makes Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth king. So let's read that. Uh, verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, sorry, and he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time of da- that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So that's why he won't be king over all of Israel uh, for a while. But here's the question. Why wasn't Ishbosheth out at war with Saul and his brothers? I have no idea. Maybe he fell ill. Maybe he was injured. Maybe Saul purposely left him at home. Um, Justin, well, because he knew they were all going to die. Of course, you know, he, that had been prophesied over him. So maybe he said, all right, Ishbosheth, you stay home so at least somebody is left from our family. Um, I'm not exact, exactly sure, uh, but Abner makes him king over the northern tribes. This action unfortunately leads to a divided kingdom and a civil war. Verse 12. See, it's not my fault. Now Abner, the son of Ner, how is it my fault that I find every time we get it? Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in the opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, the place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now we're going to get into a little more of that. Um, but this, this is just sick to me. Um, neither Abner or Joab were particularly righteous uh, guys. Um, but, but this is disgusting. But apparently, it was common before a battle began. Uh, it, it, we even saw it with David and Goliath. Before the battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, send out a champion, and we'll see who wins. It was kind of like a gladiator fight, right? The Philistines never had any intention of surrendering if Goliath was beaten. And I guarantee Saul had no intention of surrendering if whoever went out was beaten. Um, But it was this kind of gladiator sport before the actual battle began as a form of entertainment. And I'm sorry, people killing each other is not entertaining. Well, unless it's a movie and it's justified. But that's beside the point, right? Yeah, because it's not real. I, I know this is way off topic. You know, I forgot to push record. Yeah, no, I won't do that. I'll record it later. <laughs> oh, well, um, I forgot to push record. So there we go. Um, uh, but it reminds me of... Um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, well, it was gross. It shouldn't have been done. But, yeah, I, I, I'm, it's, it's gone. Uh, <laughs> so, thanks for helping. Thanks for trying. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just record it tomorrow in my office. Um, but uh, the, whole, the whole point here was that they wanted this kind of sport to begin. They knew they were going to battle. And so they each came up, each of them grabbed the other one, probably by the hair or the back of the head, and they stabbed each other at the same time. So 24 men fell down dead. And the batter, And so there was a very fierce battle that day. Now, verse 18. Now, the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, 
and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? And he said, I am. Why are they having a conversation while they're running in battle? You know, it's just <laughs> different times. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of a spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, they stood still. So exactly, right? I have confused looks from people. Exactly, right? So they're running. Abner looks behind him and he goes, is that Asahel? And Asahel goes, yeah, it's me. <laughs> you know? And Abner goes, dude, at least stop and, and pick up some armor. Grab yourself a sword. Apparently he was not, he didn't have armor. He didn't have a weapon. And Asahel's like, nope. Right? And, and Abner looks behind him and goes, dude, stop it. I don't want to have to kill you. How would I ever face your brother Joab if I have to kill you? And Asahel's like, nope. Right, so Abner goes, well, I'm, I'm kind of, maybe he got tired of running. I don't know. So he stopped, put his spear out, and Asahel was running so fast when he hit the blunt end of the spear, it came out his back and he died. Yeah, I'm like, you know, I, I mean, there's there's some dense people in the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. <laughs> You know, I, I just, I, as the hell was, he, I don't get it. Anyways, um, so where he fell down dead, people stopped and saw. So Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Alma, which is before Gaia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still, and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing of David's servants, 19 men, and Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. That, that is a rout. They took up Asahel, they buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem, and Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. So, um, yeah, this is, it's just kind of crazy that this battle began. Of course, uh, Abner, right, he's at least got himself some wisdom. He's like, he figured that he lost a bunch of guys, because the, the servants of Ishbosheth weren't that great. Maybe he had a thousand guys with him, who knows? But you lose 360 guys in battle, you notice it, right? They're gathered on a hill. He's probably looking around going, this is all that's left. Hey, Joab, this is silly. Why, why should we keep doing this? And Joab goes, you know what? You're right, because if you hadn't said that, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have stopped until you were all dead. So th this bit of logic is listened to. Um, clearly, David losing 20 men with Asahel and Abner lost 360 men. Huge victory. And now Asahel is buried in Bethlehem. And um, I don't know if you remember this or not, uh, because it was tucked away back in 1 Samuel, but uh, Zeruiah was David's uncle. 
he was Jesse's brother. Um, and Zeruiah's three kids then, Joab, Asahel, and Abishai, would have been David's cousins, right? Not something that we think about all that often. Chapter 3. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And this just makes sense. God had removed his hand and anointing from Saul, and by extension, God had removed his hand of a blessing and anointing from his line as concerns the throne. God had anointed and chosen David to sit on the throne of Israel. He was partially fulfilling that by sitting on the throne of Judah. Uh, and so this makes complete sense that David grew stronger and Ishbosheth grew weaker. Verse 2. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Maaka. Wait, wait a second. And the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Then the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. Huh? The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife, Igla. These were born to David in Hebron. Now, I, if you remember, the last time David's wives were mentioned, he had two. Now, two is already one too many. But he had two. Now, if you go through and count, now he's got six. And before we're done tonight, he's going to have seven. Dude! That's not as bad as his son. Um, somewhere along the line, he, he got himself four more wives. And the seven and a half years he spent in... Um, Judah in uh, Hebron, all of his wives bore him a son. Now, we do know he had, he had at least uh, one other child, a daughter, Tamar. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later on. Um, now, here's the thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God gave instructions for what a king should and should not do. Among the three, there were three should nots. The first one was the multiplying of wives. Don't multiply wives like the heathen nations around you, right? You're not to have a harem. Number two, don't multiply horses. And number three, don't multiply gold. Now, David really didn't multiply horses and gold, um, not, not to the extent of Solomon, at least. Um, but he clearly multiplied wives. Solomon goes off the deep end with this. I actually saw a thing the other day, and it, would, it was completely unrelated, um, that said that, that somebody figured out Solomon's approximate net worth, and it, it, it was like $3 trillion in today's money. <laughs> uh, at one point in time, Solomon was more wealthy than half the countries on earth uh, today. At the time, more wealthy than probably every country on earth, but more wealthy than half the countries on earth today. But he just, he took it to an extreme. And why? Because, well, his dad didn't set the greatest example, did he? Because he's going to have another wife tonight. Eventually, he's going to take Bathsheba. I, I mean, it's unnecessary. Now, all of these sons will come back in various ways as we continue on, um, with one exception, and that's his second-born son, Chiliab. Um, we, we don't see him again really. He may be named in a genealogy or something, but he doesn't do anything. Um, so it's possible that he died young, or, and this, this is the one I like, I think maybe he was just smart enough to stay out of politics and all the family drama, right? I, I mean, maybe he died young, that's a possibility, but maybe as his, as his father gained power and he saw his brothers jockeying for position and the stuff happened with Bash, he was like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go live over there. Call me for holidays, right? I just I don't want anything to do with this mess. Now, of course, it was common in that time uh, to make treaties with other nations by one king marrying another king's daughter. And um, at least two of these, I think, 
were a part of that, well, at least one of them, maybe I think the other one was too. Um, but in the end, he disobeyed God's command. Now, what's good about that is that it shows us, and I've mentioned this many times, but I'm going to keep repeating it because it's good for all of us. It shows us that God uses imperfect people. God uses imperfect people. And the Bible is honest with us about the imperfections of those who have come before us. And that that just brings me so much comfort. I don't, I don't have six wives. Praise God. Um, I thought Valentine's I thought, yeah, yeah. I, I thought Valentine's Day was expensive with one wife. Man, do you imagine garlic mics with six wives? I would have been. Yeah, that'd be rough. That'd be rough, right? I have a story about some folks we saw walk into garlic mics last night, but that is not while we're broadcasting on the internet. Um, but I do think this is, it's good for us to understand that God uses imperfect people. But I also think it's a warning for us uh, that just because the world or culture around us is doing something doesn't mean we should do it. Um, it doesn't give us the right to disobey God. It's exactly what Romans 12, 1 and 2 told us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. David could have very easily said, you know what? I appreciate that you want to make a treaty with me. I'm glad to make a treaty with you. I don't need to marry your daughter because my God commanded me not to, but he didn't. So that leads us to verse 6. And or now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah. The daughter, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to throw this out real quick. David married a woman named Haggith. I don't know. I, I'm thinking if I was on the dating scene and a woman came up to me and said, you know, hi, my name's Haggith. I might be asking a certain question. <laughs> right? I, I don't, I just, I don't know. Like, my, my wife has such a beautiful name. Her name is Leah. It's so beautiful. If, if I met her and she said, yeah, my name is Haggith. I'm, mm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, well, but, you know, then Saul has a concubine named Rizpah. I tell you, we have lost the art of naming children. They just did it so much better back then. She was the daughter of Ayah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner. And more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, sworn, sworn, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So Abner was gaining power, right? Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. It says there in verse 6. Because Ishbosheth, yes, technically as Saul's son, he would be king, but he did not have a military following. Abner did. And the men listened to Abner, and Abner told them, We're fighting for Ishbosheth, and they said, Okay. Right? Ishbosheth apparently gets a little paranoid. Because it was a common practice back then that when a, a king took a kingdom from another king, that that king would then sleep with all of his wives and concubines as a show of authority and power. Uh, if you uh, will get there later in 2 Samuel, Absalom does this to David. Uh, when Absalom tries to get the kingdom away from David, he sleeps with several of David's concubines. Um, 
So Abner accuses, or sorry, Ishbosheth accuses Abner of doing this. Now, we have no indication that he actually did this, right? Maybe he did, but we have no indication that he had actually done this. And I'm kind of thinking he didn't do it because of his response, right? Because if he had done it in an attempt to take the kingdom away from Ishbosheth, we probably would see Abner killing Ishbosheth right here. Because we know Abner is not a guy who has, uh, uh, you know, a particularly high moral standard. But I'm thinking he didn't do it because of his response. And you also have to remember that Abner, the son of Ner, was Saul's uncle. So he was Ishbosheth's great uncle. Um, and because of this accusation, Abner's like, I'm done with you, kid. Right? I, I set you up as king. I have been loyal to you. I've been loyal to your father's brothers. I've been loyal to your friends. And you're going to accuse me of this? Fine. I'm going to help David get the kingdom away from you. And Ishbosheth, well, he didn't say anything because he was afraid of Abner. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking this was Ishbosheth being a little paranoid. But I can't prove that. Maybe Abner actually did it. Um, whatever the case, that's the exchange that took place. So we get to verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying, Also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. David said, Yeah, great. Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you. You shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. This scene kind of boggles my mind. Right? Abner says, let's make a deal. Right? Clearly, Ishbosheth, I want you to have the kingdom, David. David says, great, let's do it. But first, go get this other wife for me. Because apparently six isn't enough. And so he sends a message to Ishbosheth, and it would seem he actually sent Abner to collect her, since he was the one who told her her well, now ex-husband, Paltiel, to go home. Um, I don't get this. this. This was not David's finest moment, right? Certainly not his worst, but it wasn't his finest. When Saul went nuts, he gave Michael to Paltiel. This was years, 10, 12, who knows, Years after David and her had maybe been married a year, six months, we're not exactly sure. But it's been a decade plus that, that she's been married to Paltiel. And I can't imagine David loved her all that much, but Paltiel did, right? He follows her weeping. And there's, there's no political advantage to this. None whatsoever. So I, I don't, I don't get this. Um, it was wrong for Saul to give her to another man when she was married to David. That's wrong. But it was wrong for David to take her back after all that time, when he had absolutely no reason to, and then to do it this way. It, it's it's not right. But it's what happened. Um, and we're going to see, it doesn't take long before Michael, um, apparently, it w isn't real happy about it because she becomes very contemptuous towards David. Uh, verse 17. Now, Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines. 
in the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went to his place. So very simply, um, Abner becomes, uh, you know, David's campaign manager, for lack of a better word. He goes to the elders of Israel and goes, don't you guys remember when you wanted David to be king? Don't you remember that God said David's the one who would deliver us from the Philistines? Don't you remember all that? Well, let's do it, right? Ishbosheth, right? I don't like him anymore. So let's, let's go get David. Let's go make him king over all Israel. And so these 20 people that he shows up with to this feast are, are most likely elders and leaders of the other tribes in Israel. And they come and make this covenant uh, together with Abner uh, and David, promising to gather all Israel to him. Now, verse 22. Um, at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. So Abner apparently had more people to go convince that David needed to be king. So David sends him off to do that. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, oh, I can't wait till he dies, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he is gone in peace. And Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he is already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you. You guys will never be able to read that name again without chuckling. Um, he, clearly, he came to deceive you. Um, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you were doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, uh, who brought him back from the well of Sarah, but David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge, or a leper, or who leans on a staff, or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. So um, Joab gets back, finds out David makes this covenant, and he's convinced that Abner is not sincere, right? He's, he's a spy. He's being deceitful. Um, why, why would you let him go? Why would you make a covenant with him? Um, I think Abner truly intended to help David get the kingdom. That's what it would seem to me. Um, but Joab's motives, I think, were elsewhere. So he gets Abner to come back. Now, probably the only way he would have gotten Abner to come back would have been to send a messenger to him and said, hey, King David has something else for you. Right? You need to come back. The king forgot to give you something, forgot to tell you something, whatever it might be. And so Abner comes back, and when he gets there, Joab says, hey, can I talk to you real quick? And Abner goes, sure, right, because he had made a covenant with the king. He thought the king was the one who called him back. And Joab stabs him and kills him. And apparently his brother Abishai was part of this. Because this was done without David's knowledge, or approval, he declares himself in his kingdom guiltless, and then he curses Joab and his descendants. I mean, this is quite the curse, right? May there never be or never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or who's a leper or who leans on a staff, which would mean they were crippled in some way, or who falls by the sword or who dies of starvation. I'm like, dude, dude, <laughs> that that's quite... That is quite the um, curse. This, on the part of Joab, is pure revenge. It's not justice, right? I honestly don't think that um, Abner should really be held guilty for killing Asahel. Um, he tried not to. He tried really hard not to kill Asahel. 
right? Told him to get armor, told him to pick up a sword, told him to stop coming after him. He told him he didn't want to kill him because he didn't want to have to face Joab after killing his little brother. And Asahel wouldn't listen. And it was war. Right? I got, I mean, any person dying, you know, for senseless violence is what it is, but I don't, I don't think you hold Abner responsible because if he hadn't killed Asahel, Asahel would have killed him. That was his goal. That's why he chased him. Um, so this, this was pure revenge. Romans 12, 19 tells us, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Hebrews 10, verse 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Uh, Both Romans 12 and Hebrews 10 quote Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, There are places, unfortunately, in the world where revenge killing is still practiced. It's it's unfortunate. Uh, But revenge is not ours to take. It's not ours to take. We're going to talk a little bit more about that before we're done, but uh, for our purposes here. So verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God, do so to me, and worse also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. All the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then King David said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So in these verses, we see David mourning for Abner and writing a short song of lament for him. He insisted on fasting until sundown, and all the people were just loving their new king, right? He fasted till evening, and they said, and this pleased the people because everything he did, was pleasing to the people. Uh, So David was very much loved uh, by those in Judah who were following him. Uh, But he expresses his grief and he calls himself weak. He says that the remaining sons of Zeruiah, Joab and Abishai, uh, were too harsh. And the word there can mean cruel, but it can also mean uncontrollable. Um, And so he declares that the Lord will deal with them. So here's This is interesting. So the death of Abner apparently delays David becoming king over Israel for a few years because Abner was the one who was gathering all the elders of Israel uh, to basically swear their loyalty to David. So his death um, caused, right, a delay in, in him becoming king over all Israel. But it would also seem that David was a little afraid of Joab, right? It seems he's a little fearful of Joab, Um but he needed him in order to establish and keep his power, right? While he was afraid of him, he recognized that Joab was a strong military leader. Uh, We're going to see a little bit later on. It's a very cool account in 2 Samuel when David decides he wants Jerusalem, uh, that Joab is the one who goes and gets into Jerusalem uh, in order for David to conquer the city. Um, But at that time, David said, whoever can get in Jerusalem, I will appoint them as commander of my army. So it would seem that David actually at this time, even though it doesn't say it, removed Joab as commander of his army. But he's also a little afraid of him. Um, Later, when David's about to die, he tells his son Solomon, you know everything that Joab has done. Don't let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. And the moment David dies, Joab runs into the temple and he grabs the horns of the altar thinking, well, they won't execute me in the temple. And so the guy comes back who was sent to execute him and tells Solomon, 
Joab said he's not coming out of the temple. Solomon says, fine, kill him there. So he goes into the temple and kills him. Joab knew as soon as David was dead, he was dead. He knew it. Two points of application I want to make before we close. Number one, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, but we see God fulfilling his promises to David. It took a while, but God is faithful and will always fulfill his word, right? We're going to continue to see this in David's life. Whether it's something in this life or the promise of eternal life to come in Jesus, our Savior, we can always know that God will keep his promises to us. And this, because, this is because his promises are based on his faithfulness and not ours. Joshua 21.45 said, Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 reminds us, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. I think it bears reminding that God always answers prayer. Now, we tend to get this idea that if God doesn't say yes to what we want, that he didn't answer our prayers. But last time I checked, no was an answer. Um, and wait is another answer. Um, we, we may not like it, you, you know, and, and I've, I've heard people, I, I've counseled people, I've been praying and praying and praying and God just won't do this. Why isn't he listening? I said, I think he's listening. Then why won't he answer? I said, I think he's answered. You don't like it. It doesn't mean he didn't answer. Um, but if God says yes, it's because it's the right time for us and it's what he wants in our lives. If God says no, it's because it's not the right time or it's something he doesn't want in our lives. If God says wait, well, it may be something he wants. It's just not time, right? I mean, there's... There's, there's infinite possibilities, and the whole purpose of our surrendering ourselves to the will of God is because he knows what's best. Now, you all know I'm not very good at that. I can live with no. When God tells me no, okay, I can live with that. I get ecstatic when he says yes. But I hate it. And he knows this. We've talked about it. Hate it when he asks me to wait. Um, I do because, well, being disobedient to God's a bad idea. Um, but it's just it's, it's waiting it's so hard for me. But Isaiah forty thirty one reminds us: those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Second, we see the foolishness of revenge, right? Ultimately, taking revenge against Abner is going to cost Joab his life. Um, I know there's been a few times in my life where I've become very revengey. I wrote revengey down. I, I don't know what, what the act, how do you make that an adjective? Um, but I've become revengey, vengeful. I like revengey. There's been why you got to be so smart. Um, I like revengey. There's been times where I've been all revengey, and the Lord has restrained me. Sometimes my wife has restrained me. Um, but as I said earlier, vengeance and judgment belong to the Lord. Now I'm going to add a caveat. Right? Jesus told us to turn the other cheek in Matthew five thirty nine, and again, I think this applies to us seeking revenge on others. But here's the caveat: there may be a time when we take action to prevent harm from coming to someone else, right? I don't think that's being revengey. Um, it's, it's not revenge in my mind. If someone wrongs me, if someone hurts me, if someone insults me or, or spreads a false rumor about me or whatever it is, I may confront that person, but I, I have no need to get revenge on them. Um, however, if I think someone is going to harm somewhere, someone else, or if someone's stupid enough to come after my family, um, then I believe I have a duty to respond to that. I, I do. I think the Bible teaches that in, in several places. We talked about it a lot uh, back in Exodus. It doesn't mean I enact some form of vigilante justice, but that I do what I can 
that still honors the Lord to prevent it from happening to someone else. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says this, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Right? That's very different. Speaking up for the poor and helpless is not revenge. Right? That's part of what we should be doing as followers of Christ. Now, every situation is different. And we need to seek the Lord. We need to seek his wisdom. We need to seek the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need to seek the guiding of the, God's word before we decide, yeah, I need to do something about this. Unless, of course, there's immediate danger and you have to deal with it on the spot. Um, but there are times to get involved. There are times to seek justice as long as our motives are pure before God. And we are not seeking revenge. When we have a desire to seek revenge, we can remember this. We have wronged God more than any person on earth has ever wronged us. I know, that's, I didn't even like writing it down. That's a hard statement for us to hear. Because I've had some people do some pretty horrible things to me. I have. Um, but I have wronged God to a much greater degree. Did God seek revenge? No. Instead, he provided redemption through Jesus by his love and grace. He commands us to forgive others the same way we have been forgiven in Colossians 3.13 uh, so we don't become bitter, which we're warned against in Hebrews 12.15. Forgiveness is letting go of the offense and not demanding our revenge for that offense. We can do this for others because God has done it for us. We must do this for others or God will withhold forgiveness from us. That's another hard truth we don't like. Uh, but Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says, if you do not forgive your brother, neither will he, neither will God forgive you. I don't like that verse. Anybody else? Right? That's not my favorite verse. Right? That's one that's, I'm not going to cross stitch that on a pillow. But it doesn't change that he commands that of us. And we can do this because he's shown us how. We can do this because he's done it for us. We can do this because he empowers us by his spirit so that we can do it. Right? He'll walk with us. He doesn't tell us we have to do it on our own. When we do this for others, we're set free from bitterness. When we do this for others, and it seems unfair or unjust, we can rest assured that God's going to take care of it. Now, I say that, we don't need to get revenge. Hopefully, that person repents of whatever it is and seeks forgiveness in a relationship with Christ so that they will not be judged for what they've done. If they don't, God will deal with it. And I'm going to make a bet, but he's going to do a much better job than I would have. I'm just saying. Now, I'm not telling you, you know, start praying some of the Old Testament imprecatory prayers of David. You know, God, bust the, you said you'd get revenge. Bust their teeth out. You know, be like David. Give them a discharge, Lord. Right? I'm not encouraging those types of prayers. Um, I'm just saying we can rest that God's going to take care of it. Now, I'll add one more thing and then I'll shut up. And that is, don't be too hard on yourself if that process is difficult for you. <laughs> because... There have been instances and people in my life that I have had to forgive over and over and over again. There's been many times when I've, I've told the Lord, all right, I forgive them because you tell me I have to. It's not because I want to or because I feel like it. I've, I've said that. And sometimes I'll say, I've said that prayer. Uh, in one situation, it took me five years. It took me five years to reach a place of actually forgiving them. Right? Five years. God didn't dismiss me. God didn't strike me dead. Um, I had to forgive them. I mean, over the course of um, however, what, what is that? I mean, close to 1,700, 1,800 days, 
I probably forgave them uh, four, five, six hundred times. Every time I found myself getting angry, every time I found myself thinking about it, every time I found myself getting all revengey, I would stop and I'd say, all right, Lord, I don't feel like it. But at your command, I forgive them. And over time, God changed my heart. Over time, he changed my heart. And I came to a place where I actually stopped being all revengey. I actually didn't have to repeatedly forgive because God healed me of the wound and God actually brought a level of restoration to that relationship. Not a great level of restoration because, well, I'm not dumb, but some level of restoration. Um, So there you go. Let's pray. Next week, uh, hope to get through chapters four and five and we'll see David, David, Diva, Diva. Anyways, we'll see David uh, reign over all Israel if we can get through both chapters. Until then, uh, Lord, we just love you and we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for the example that you give us and that you have forgiven us the great and terrible things we've done. And that you will, by your grace, by your strength, by the guidance of your word and the power of your spirit, help us to forgive others. Lord, give us the ability to have grace for ourselves when that process is hard and takes a while. But help us out of obedience. Follow you in that way. Uh, Lord, we know that you are faithful. We know that you will do everything for us that you've promised. And so we entrust every aspect of our lives to you. And we give you praise for the things we're waiting on because we trust you and we want to bring you glory. In Jesus' name.